Welcome to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. At Village, we seek to be shaped by the life of Christ, to practice authentic friendship, and serve the world. You're invited to join us at either our Mission Campus or our Antioch Campus. For now, we hope you hear a word for your own life in this sermon. Our reading today is Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 33 and 54 through 62. You can find these texts in your Pew Bible on page 961. Let us pray. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him in the firelight, stared at him and said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else on seeing him said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then about an hour later, still another kept insisting, Surely this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. At that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So it was the day before my first day as pastor of the Seven Oaks Church in South Carolina. I was moving boxes into what would be my office there. Leonard was a man in his mid-70s, an elder in the church there. He saw me carrying boxes in the building. I was dressed more for moving than for pastoring. He said, uh, do you know when our new pastor will arrive? 
I said, I sure do. Hi, I'm Tom. He said, you're not with a moving company? I, I said, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Tom. He said, Tom who? I said, I'm your new pastor. He said, good God, you're a kid. Over the years, Leonard would become a trusted friend and mentor. He taught me some things about church I didn't even know I needed to learn. And we would often laugh about that first encounter when he assumed I was with the moving company. You know, it happens from time to time we fail to see who's right in front of us, or at least fail to see them as they are. We spoke to that last Sunday. Peter sees Jesus, but his vision is incomplete. You may remember that from last week. Sometimes we fail to see people as they really are. At least, at least it happens from time to time. The reverse is true as well. Sometimes the world fails to see us as we are. In Wendell Berry's novel, Jaber Crow, uh, Jaber is a barber and I would say resident theologian in the town of Port William, Kentucky. It's a town like a lot of towns defined in large part by its size or lack thereof. Barry describes it this way, you would need to draw a very big map of the world in order to make Port William visible on it. In the actual scale of the state highway map, Port William would be smaller than the dot that indicates its location. In the eyes of the powers that be, we Port Williamites live and move and have our being within a black period about the size of one that ends a sentence. It would be a considerable overstatement to say that before making their decisions, the leaders of the world do not consult the citizens of Port William. And how many such invisible, nameless, powerless little places are there in the world? All the world, as a matter of fact, is a mosaic of little places invisible to the powers that be. To live in an invisible fashion can be painful. I, I think there is a basic spiritual desire to be seen just to be seen. To be invisible in the world is dehumanizing. You've probably experienced that. You've probably been in some circumstance, some situation where it seems you're right there and those around you have no, no sense of who you are. I read about Ashley Bartholomew. She's an ICU nurse in El Paso, Texas. She was taking care of COVID patients in an overflowing ward. The, these were the days before vaccines when we were still hunkered down in our homes, wiping down our groceries and only seeing others on Zoom. She was clad in PPE and exhausted with the care of 25 patients, with some of them dying every day. She said she had performed CPR more times in the prior two weeks than she had over the prior 10 years combined. She felt that she was risking her life every time she stepped into a patient's room. 
already at the end of a rope. She stepped into a room with a patient who had the local news on reporting that El Paso was in need of refrigerated trucks to serve as temporary morgues because they were running out of space. This patient lying in his COVID bed said, that's fake news. I don't know why anybody's making such a big deal of this. Ashley looked at this man sick from COVID himself and refusing to see what's right in front of him and she couldn't help herself. She began to sob. I think it was in part because she felt invisible. She was exhausted for, by caring for people that she too often could not keep alive and her work, her life, her risk is just dismissed. It's fake news. It's like being invisible. There's a basic spiritual desire to be seen, to be recognized for who you are. And I'm not talking about like that little kid impulse, hey, mom, watch me, watch me. Hey, dad, watch me. I'm talking about the basic need to be seen as a human being whose story matters. I think this is at the root of much of the conversation about race these days. We're fighting over whose stories can be told, whose stories are legitimate. Several years ago, a group of us met together and read through and talked through Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility. She talks about this reality of invisibleness in culture. She, she gave an example in this. She said, consider the writers we read in school. The list usually includes Ernest Hemingway, John Steinbeck, Dickens, Dostoevsky, Mark Twain, Jane Austen, Shakespeare. These writers are seen as representing the universal human experience, and we read them precisely because of their capacity to speak to all. But when seeking writers of diversity, we read different authors. These writers, she continues, usually include Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, James Baldwin, Amy Tan, Sandra Cisneros. We go to these writers for the black or Asian perspective. Morrison is always a black writer, not just a writer. But when we're not looking for the black or Asian perspective, she says, we return to white writers reinforcing the idea of white as just human, normal, and people of color as particular kinds of humans. This allows white writers, she said, to be seen as not having an agenda, while racialized writers always do. If I understand her point, She's saying to equate the universal human experience with any particular group leaves any other group somewhat invisible. It's painful. 
There are many people who all the time, and I think all people some of the time, seem invisible in the world. Their humanness is not fully seen. You've probably experienced that. And it's a spiritual desire to be seen. But, but, there's something perhaps worse than not being seen, and that is being seen when you don't want to be. Uh, when we lived in Florida, uh, we on occasion would go to the Players' Championship golf tournament. It was great fun. One year, my brother Jim was with us. We were on number three, which is a challenging par three where the crowd can get pretty close to the green, actually. We were there right up front, and Vijay Singh was lining up his putt. He had gone through his routine. He was standing over the ball, and my my and all the all the marshals there had their hands up you know quiet please you, it was quiet it was silent my brother had been drinking a bottled water all finished now and i'm sure almost unconsciously as he watched vj singh stand over his putt he he crunched that bottle um i i don't i don't know if you've noticed and i don't know that i had noticed until that moment but if you crunch those plastic bottles, they make a lot of noise. And in an instant, my brother had the full attention of everybody on hole number three, including Vijay Singh, who was looking at him and looked none too pleased. And in a moment, my brother was fully seen, and he kind of felt like he was in one of those old Southwest commercials, you know, want to get away. We all want to be seen except when we don't. We all have moments, decisions, feelings we want to keep hidden. Jesus had been arrested, and most of the disciples scattered. But Peter was brave enough to keep following. But the text says something noteworthy. Peter wasn't just following. That's usually how that, how that is described in the Gospels. They followed, they followed, they followed. But here it says Peter was following at a distance. If I understand the text, the distance is not a statement of geography. It's a distance of the heart. The distance is not measured in feet or yards on the ground. It's measured in commitment or trust in the heart. You know, too often faith is presented as belief or unbelief, in or out, yes or no, certain or not. But that's really not the truth of it, is it? It's much grayer than that. I don't know many people who believe or don't believe Mostly, I know folks who struggle to believe, who have fragile faith or growing faith or battered faith or withering faith or striving faith or searching faith. We follow this gospel life, but often we follow at a distance because our trust of the gospel is never certain all the time. 
We believe, help our unbelief. Peter follows at a distance, and the distance allows him a bit of control over his discipleship, a bit of risk management. So when they say to him, hey, you're one of his followers, aren't you? We've seen you with him before. He says, no, 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 no. You got the wrong guy. I don't even know him. I imagine even Peter is surprised by his response here. Peter anticipated this moment. He anticipated this moment would come, and in his own imagination, he assumed that he would stand up. He assumed that he would be bold, that he would be faithful. He says, I will die for you. But when the moment comes, he folds. And he discovers he's not the person he thought he would be. And in that moment, in that moment of denial, in that moment that Peter probably feels is the worst moment of his life, Jesus turns and looks at him. Jesus sees the truth of who he is, and it's more than Peter can handle to be seen in that moment. And he runs out and weeps. We all want to be seen. We need to be seen. But at the same time, we all want certain aspects of ourselves to be hidden. And Peter just didn't have that luxury. In his worst moment, Jesus turns and looks at him. Of course, Jesus could not have been surprised by what he sees. Jesus predicted that this is exactly what would happen. He said, Peter, I know you. I know your courage, and I know your fear. I know how you want to be faithful, but I also know the things that get in your way. It's easy to assume that the look that Jesus gives Peter is a look of disappointment, even shame. But I don't think that's it. When Jesus turns to look at this stumbling, failing disciple who follows only at a distance, in this look, I think Jesus is bridging the distance closing the gap. When Peter can't get to him, he comes to Peter. The look of Jesus is not so much a look of judgment as it is grace. This look dissolves the distance, reconnects them. Jesus says to Peter, I know the worst moment in your life, and I'm still going to die for you. I know the worst there is in you, and I'm not not letting go of you. When you cannot come to me, I will come to you. My grace will not leave you behind. Grace is not some sweet attribute of God. Grace is the tenacious faithfulness of God as God holds on to us 
in the very moment when we give God reason to let go. In grace, God knows the whole story of us. God sees all of us, the good, the bad, and God holds on. When we're not faithful enough to get to God, God comes to us. That is the whole story of the gospel. And that is what grace looks like. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon at Village Presbyterian Church. Learn more about us at villagepres.org. And we invite you to join us again next week.